Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is getting really into turtlenecks right now. Seriously, I haven't been this into turtlenecks since like eighth grade. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 190, which I can't believe I'm saying that. That means I'm 10 episodes away from 200 episodes. Man, we got to do something special for that. Taking ideas if anyone has one. <laughs> anyway, this is part three in a series about why new clothes are kind of garbage these days. And if you haven't listened to the other two parts, please go do that now because you're going to be really confused <laughs> if you don't. We'll still be here waiting for you when you're done listening. So yes, this week we are continuing to unpack why new clothes have become total garbage over the past 15-ish years. There's so many reasons to talk about this, right? Like this seems like maybe to people who aren't in it, aren't thinking about it as much as we are, it might seem like, oh, what a silly thing to spend three episodes of a podcast talking about. But this whole garbagey clothing situation has big time repercussions. For one, if we're just going to allow ourselves to be selfish for a moment, which I do think we need to remember to be selfish sometimes, right? It's terrible for customers. All these garbage clothes, us, the people who buy them, it's terrible for us. Nothing fits well, nothing lasts long, and we're constantly having to replace items. So we're spending money on clothes that could be better spent on just about anything else. I think back, man, this is like getting the time machine, not going as far as we've gone in the past, but going back to say like 2020 when I had Old Flame Mending on the podcast and they were telling me how people would come to them with clothes from Amazon that were horrible, that were unrepairable, that were unalterable, that just were destined to not be worn. And Back then, I remember thinking like, well, that's because it's Amazon, right? And then I soon I was like, okay, that's because it's Amazon and Shein. And now it's like, oh yeah, no, it's just because it's clothes, right? <laughs> like it's just so bad right now. Furthermore, and maybe this is just my issue because as you know, I am very sensitive. These clothes depress me. They eat away at my self-esteem because of course, I'm sure many of you will see yourselves in this in what I'm about to say. I tend to blame the bad fit or even the lack of longevity of these clothes on myself. That like I am the reason that these clothes are so crappy in the first place, which is ironic because I actually know that these clothes are crappy, right? I know that they are not built to last, that they don't fit well, that they make you smelly, they just don't make you feel good. And yet I will say I'm the problem here when I try something on and I can't get my hand through the armhole or something. Like, uh, it's just not good for us financially or emotionally to be sold all of these bad clothes. But beyond ourselves, we're done being selfish now, we're moving on. The garbagey nature of clothing is a pretty big deal because this low quality is actually fueling overconsumption and a growing environmental crisis caused by an unsustainable volume 
of clothing that's being produced and tossed out every year. Basically, the more garbagey clothes there are, the more repercussions the whole planet is feeling. And as I touched on in the last episode when I talked about returns, the fashion industry is kind of short-sighted about the impact of these low-quality clothes, not just on the planet and its people, they're definitely not even thinking about that, but they're so short-sighted about the impact on their business model and like the health of their businesses. Because while we're all buying more clothes than ever, we are also returning more clothes than ever. So it's hard for these retailers to make the math math, which is pushing them to lower the cost of creating these clothes even more. So they're even lower quality. That leads to even more returns, which leads to pushing down the costs even more to cover the cost of those returns, which leads to even more returns because the quality is even worse. Just goes on and on forever. Even these brands who cannot think of the planet or the humanity of it all, right? They're like, what? We're, we're into capitalism big time. We're not like seeing the unselfish part of it, right? Even they can't seem to see that they're in this broken cycle that they can't just jump out of, that they have to fix what they're doing. They have to fundamentally change the way they work. And I'm going to tell you, it's not out of reach for them to make those changes because it means going back to where they've been in the past. It's nothing new, honestly. And I do wonder, which we're going to talk about as we get to the end of the episode today, how long it's going to take for them to get there and what we can do to make them realize it's time. It's time to fix this broken machine. All of the reasons that clothes are so garbagey right now that we have unpacked so far are indicative of an industry that is just so short-sighted, it's hard to see how the math will math for them forever. Like they're gonna have to figure it out, right? For one, there is the overproduction. We talked about this in part one of this series. Every time we buy a brand new garment from a big retailer, we're also paying for the 45 billion garments that the industry produces every year that are never sold or worn. And not only are we paying for the manufacturing and materials involved in creating those garments, in most cases, we're also paying for the disposal. So we're paying for all this stuff that no one ever bought. And the industry creates all of these unsold garments for several reasons that all connect back into just how broken this industry is and how it's caught in this like cycle of bad decisions begatting more bad decisions. By the way, really proud of myself for finally working the word begat into an episode of Clothes Horse, so pat on the back for me. (laughs) Anyway, how, how do these unsold clothes come to exist? Well, one is, you know, they march towards those unrealistic sales plans. And just to reiterate what I've said to you before, the higher your sales plan as a company, which by the way, Investors and shareholders want to see high sales plans and growth year after year after year. The higher those sales plans, the more inventory you need. So you need to make and buy more stuff to sell. Then when you miss that sales plan, which is frequently the case, especially in the last few years, where like, honestly, the economy has been unpredictable and specifically how and what customers are spending money on has become somewhat unpredictable. 
when you miss that sales plan as a company, you're left with a lot of unsold inventory. And once again, all of us customers who do buy something from these companies, we we are paying for that unsold inventory as well. They may as well just throw it in the bag for us, right? Next, brands are buying in higher quantities to get better pricing, even beyond what they actually think they can sell. They know that they will most likely not sell all of the units that they buy, but they pay less per unit by buying more. They need that lower cost because the targets for cost are so low, thanks to all the things we've been discussing right now, right? And don't worry, if you're forgetting why those costs have been pushed down, we're going to talk about that many times in this episode. Next, another reason why there's so much clothing that no one ever buys is that these brands are, they're rushing so much. They're skipping fittings. They're skipping sample reviews. And so the final product frequently ends up having major quality and fit issues. These brands will try to mark it down over and over again to a lower and lower price. And often they're still left with a lot of it. And honestly, the customers who did buy it because they thought it was a great deal probably aren't really wearing it anyway because it has these larger issues. I'll also say that a lot of this excess unsold inventory that we're all paying for stems from buying into every single trend, which you know is part of the fast fashion business model. And buying into every trend, even if it's short-lived or kind of unappealing, buying into all those trends leads to a lot of unsold product. Also, buying into the same trends as every other brand results in unsold stuff too. I mean, we've talked before about how brands are copying one another sort of endlessly, and it reaches a point where kind of every store, no matter even who their exact target audience is, kind of all has the same stuff. I want you to put a pin in that idea of everybody kind of having the same stuff because they're all copying one another because it's going to come back later in this episode. But yeah, here are all these reasons so far that are like symptoms of fast fashion also being causes of fast fashion and really all resulting in garbage clothes, right? But there's more because there's all of that air freight. It still blows my mind as just like a person, but also a person who has worked in the fashion industry for a long time, that most clothing is being shipped via airplane around the world, sometimes more than once. It's just like, it still blows my mind that most clothing, like most new clothing, is being shipped via airplane all around the world, sometimes more than once. What a waste of fuel and money and ah, it's just so gross. If the industry slowed down, it wouldn't have to pay for all that air shipping. And then maybe it wouldn't have to overproduce in order to get the better pricing or cut the quality of the clothing in order to afford the air freight. And then, you know, the clothes would be better and be returned less often. It all adds up, right? But instead, we have an industry that is not only selling us crappy clothes in the name of speed, it's also creating a massive climate footprint in doing so. And then, of course, there are all of the returns. 
On average, as I said in last week's episode, about three out of every 10 garments sold in the U.S. is returned. For some brands, it's even higher, like Revolve, where I just never stop marveling at this statistic. Six out of 10 items that Revolve sells are returned. I don't even know how you stay in business with that. Processing these returns is so expensive. In fact, some analysts believe that it costs retailers 59% of the original selling price to ship and process a returned item. In last week's episode, I sort of did that math for you, but like top line here, we're saying like, if you paid $50 for a shirt and returned it, it cost that retailer $30 in return shipping and processing. How did they make any money? Well, the spoiler is they didn't. And that's why more and more of them are charging for returns or making it a lot harder in the first place, maybe only offering store credit instead of a refund. I'm looking at you, Dolls Kill. I hear all about this on Reddit. Or just saying, hey, we're going to give you the money, but keep the item, sort of passing the burden on to you. It's like, Rather than taking a step back and saying, hey, I wonder why all these clothes are getting returned, maybe it's a quality and fit issue, they're like, no, how can we keep doing what we've been doing but make the math work in our favor? The the return rate of clothing, meaning the amount of clothing that is returned, has only increased as the quality of clothing has decreased. And it's a very clear correlation If stuff fit better and wasn't made of bad fabrics, the returns wouldn't be so bad, right? But currently, we're all paying for these returns as retailers have cut the cost of making these clothes in the first place to cover the cost of these returns. I mean, it's just like, (sighs) does anybody else feel dizzy from all of this? Because I, I do, as I'm like thinking this through, writing it out, I'm just like, oh, it's just keeps going and getting worse, right? We always say that like, you know, fashion raced its way to the bottom in the wake of the recession and that's how fast fashion became the model. I would actually say that they are still racing to a different bottom that is far deeper than what we thought it was in 2010 because I don't know how these businesses make sense at this point. Well, If you're not feeling dizzy yet, I want to assure you that you're going to get really dizzy by the time we're done with all of this, because we're going to break down the final four reasons why clothing is kind of garbage right now. And they are one, free shipping, two, deals, 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 three, cuts in the number of people working in design and production at these brands. Yeah, has a major impact, let me tell you. And lastly, maybe not your favorite one on this list, but I'm going to tell you, The last reason why clothes are kind of garbage right now, because we're still buying them. Don't worry, we're going to break it all down today. We're going to get started with a clothes horse classic, free shipping. I know that we talk about it a lot around here. And I think by now you all know how I feel about free shipping as, you know, it's, well, it's a myth, right? But let's break it down a little bit further because I think 
We know that free shipping isn't real, that it costs money to ship things. And don't worry, if that's news to you, I'm going to explain that as well. But we also have to realize that free shipping, this illusion of free shipping, actually has far-reaching impact beyond just the cost of the clothes we're getting. It has a complex impact on clothing quality, wages for people both within the fashion retail industry and outside of it. And it actually exacerbates wealth inequality. Get ready to get really riled up about free shipping. So first things first, free shipping is actually a marketing story because it motivates us to spend more. And in my experience, it drives more sales than an actual blowout clearance because we, we the collective we, We'll spend more money to get that free shipping. And if we're waffling on making a purchase, the offer of free shipping motivates us to make the purchase without continued thought because it feels risk-free, right? Like if it doesn't work out, we'll just return it. And we didn't even lose the money of shipping. It feels like there's no repercussion to it, right? Um, seriously, everywhere I've worked, every time we turn on free shipping, which we would do because we were missing our sales plan, right? The sales plan that someone in leadership created that sounded really great to investors and shareholders. We would say, okay, we can either make everything ship free for the next couple of days, or we can say, normally our free shipping threshold is $100 and we're gonna make it 50. Well, two things happened, regardless of which one we chose. For one, if it was free shipping on everything, Sales would go through the roof instantly during that time period. Better, like I said, than any blowout clearance we could have ever had. And if we just lowered the threshold to get free shipping, let me tell you, everybody who came on that site and saw that free ship- shipping was free over $50, they all spent $55, okay? So it, it was a win-win for us, even though it cost us a lot of money as a company. Big retailers use free shipping as an incentive to get us to buy more, Right. Smaller retailers have been forced to jump on the free shipping bandwagon thanks to the big retailers offering it because honestly, customers who don't know what we all know that we're all talking about right now, they really do. I don't know if they're, it's just because they're like not thinking about it. And if you point it out, they'd be like, oh yeah, you're right. Or maybe they are totally confused, but they seem to think that somehow the shipping is free, that no one's paying for it, that it's just like, The USPS dropped off a bunch of gift cards and said, yo, use these for your customers. That's not how it works, right? And I want to be clear that the incentive of free shipping is the easiest, fastest way for a retailer to get a person to convert from being a window shopper, a browser, to being an actual customer and making a purchase. And it often takes away that time that the customer might have spent thinking about the purchase because frequently free shipping has strings attached to it, sort of like a time limit, a deadline for making that purchase. And there's not time to think about it, right? And this whole idea of conversion and increasing conversion, meaning like getting someone to buy something, is really all about speed. And so like, for example, I don't know if you how many podcasts you listen to that have ads from Shopify, but Shopify is a platform that a lot of medium size and small brands use now. And it's like a platform for selling, right? It tracks the inventory and, you know, 
it processes the sales and it's really like the infrastructure under a website for a smaller business. Big retailers don't use Shopify because they have kind of grandfathered in other stuff that they built and they have more complex inventory systems behind the scenes. It's the whole thing. I could talk about that kind of stuff for hours on end because it's really interesting to me, but maybe not interesting to you. Anyway, if you have listened to some podcasts that have ads from Shopify, you'll notice or maybe you skip them, but if you hear one the next time, listen to the whole thing because Shopify boasts that it has the highest conversion of any sales platform out there. And when they speak about highest conversion, what they're saying is more people who come to a shop that is powered by Shopify, that is built upon that Shopify platform, they are more likely to be converted to customers than any other platform out there. And Shopify's platform is pretty genius because it makes the process of checking out so fast and so seamless that you don't ever have one moment where you're annoyed that you have to enter your credit card information or you're waiting for something to load or anything else that might give you that one second or five seconds to think about what you're purchasing and change your mind. I liken it to when you're shopping in real life and you maybe only have one or two things and you walk up to the front and the line is super long to check out. And as you're standing there, you think, do I really need this? Do I really want to wait in line? And ultimately, in many cases, you change your mind and you put the stuff back and you leave, right? Free shipping is one of those ways that retailers get you to not think about putting the stuff back and just go for it right now. Big retailers use free shipping as an incentive, as a motivator to get us to buy more stuff or make a purchase that we were kind of waffling on. But their use of free shipping as a way of getting us to buy more stuff actually has a larger trickle-down effect that affects other businesses as well. Smaller retailers have been forced to jump on this free shipping bandwagon, meaning offering it frequently or always, because we're, we're kind of accustomed to it as customers. And maybe you or I, we wouldn't change our mind to shop from a small business just because they didn't offer free shipping, but many, many people would even if it meant that they were gonna buy a lower quality item from Amazon or something, they would still feel motivated by the enticement of free shipping, right? Because we tend to think that shipping is sort of like valueless. It's this like tax we have to pay to make a purchase rather than stepping back and realizing that shipping is actually a service that we're paying for. And that service is that we don't have to go to the store and wait in line. We don't have to drive there and park and look around to find what we want. We might not even be able to find what we want, right? And so the shipping as a whole is actually like a really valuable service. And, you know, I think understanding that is some work we all have to do. I think when we further realize that this myth of free shipping, this illusion of free shipping is actually affecting the quality of what we're buying, maybe that, maybe that's what pushes people to walk away from free shipping. I don't know, or at least look at shipping differently. I mean, that would be amazing, right? I'm always like, how do we attack these ideas from different directions to find where they will resonate with people, where the tipping point is to motivate them to change their behavior? And perhaps this is one way we look at it, that free shipping is actually resulting in lower quality product. I'm not really sure. 
here's the thing. These medium-sized businesses, they have to offer free shipping. And then it trickles down even further to even smaller, like micro businesses on Etsy and Instagram and the various resale platforms. Because we all expect free shipping now. It started with Amazon, then all the big brands picked up on it. And then now it's like, everyone is like, shipping has no value, right? Well, when we ask a small business and these one-person micro-businesses for free shipping, we're actually asking them for a discount because they have to pay for it somehow, right? Like no one's getting shipping for free (laughs) except for us customers. But then actually, we're not really getting it for free either. Everyone is paying for shipping. I would say the micro-businesses, the smallest businesses, they actually bear the repercussions of the free shipping industrial complex uh, way more than any other brand is out there. And they may not be passing that loss onto customers in the same way because they don't have the ability to do that. Even with these big retailers who have more money and more resources, even they are giving us a sort of invisible discount when they offer us free shipping because they do, they spend a chunk of money to get orders to us. They have to pay someone to pick your order, you know, meaning pull all the items from the shelves and racks. They have to pay that same person or another person to pack it all up and prepare it for shipping. They have the cost of packaging, you know, boxes, tape, labels, packing slips. I will tell you, so many of my friends who have small businesses are like, man, it is the shipping packaging that just kills us because it's really expensive unless you can order like a whole pallet of it. And none of them have that kind of money. So for a small business, just the whole shipping, it's hard, right? Even when it's a big retailer, like I said, the retailer pays for the shipping, whether that's UPS, USPS, FedEx, DHL. These big companies are able to negotiate better rates based on the volume of packages that they're shipping, but it's still, it still costs a chunk of change. And everywhere I've worked, it's like, uh, okay, if we're going to do free shipping, like someone needs to run the numbers. Like how much money are we going to lose? Right. I will tell you the discounts that these big, big retailers get on shipping are pretty substantial, but it still adds up, you know? And I want you to put a pin in that idea of the retailers like negotiating this lower shipping costs because we're going to come back to that and actually has a big ripple effect. But when you think about it, when you really picture the process of an item getting from the warehouse to you, you can see that shipping is expensive for a reason. It's a complex set of logistics. First, The shipping carrier picks up your order and a lot of other orders from the warehouse. Next, it heads to a sorting facility where it is sorted and loaded onto a truck heading toward a sorting facility that is closer to its final destination. We've got people all along the way here, right? Driving trucks, loading, unloading, sorting. Depending on how far away this package is going, it might go to the airport and take a flight, Then it's going to be loaded onto another truck. And at the final sorting facility, it is loaded on a truck that will deliver it to your porch. Sometimes it actually just gets delivered to the local post office and then your postal carrier delivers it to you. But these packages are touched by a lot of people. And all of these trucks and airplanes, they require fuel, maintenance, insurance, and drivers and pilots. I mean, it's 
It's a lot of money, right? On top of that, of course, the workers sorting and loading all of those packages, they need to get paid too. Shipping is expensive. And as I've said, we are all paying for free shipping, even if it feels like we don't. You have to ask yourself, because we know, we know about capitalism around here now, and we know some of the principles of it, and we know how big companies work and how they have to be profitable, right? And they have to be more profitable each year than the previous year. So how do retailers make the math math and bring in those nice profits for executive bonuses and shareholder dividends while offering free shipping and paying for all that shipping? I mean, you knew that they weren't gonna just like give us the free shipping, right? They weren't just gonna write it off. They weren't like, ah, love you guys. Don't worry about it. No, of course not. There are a few things that they can do, right? I mean, one is that they could raise the prices for customers to cover this free shipping. You know, a lot of my friends who are small business owners, they actually bake the cost of shipping into the selling cost to the customer. So the customer never sees the shipping, but they're paying for it as they should, right? That's a pretty risky move for a lot of big retailers. I mean, you know, it's like very price sensitive for them. Their customers are looking for deals and there's always gonna be someone selling what they sell for cheaper somewhere else or on sale or with a promo code, what have you. So they probably aren't gonna raise their prices. And the reality is the customers want stuff to be cheap AF, right? Like that's what they're looking for, especially when they're buying from a big company. So what's really more likely to happen to cover the cost of all that free shipping is that the retailers will make each item more profitable by decreasing the cost to make it. Now, throughout this series, I have been explaining how companies cover the cost of things like returns and free shipping and how that relates to product cost. And I just want to review that again. Buying design and production will receive margin targets from upper management. The margin target is the markup products should have on average, and it is non-negotiable. If you, as a buyer, do not hit that margin target, you will not have a job much longer and you might take down your designer and your production people with you. And these margin targets, they translate into cost targets for everything you buy. Now, I think I've talked about this before, but like if you go buy something at a boutique and it's from another brand, most likely they're getting a keystone margin, which means it's double the cost they paid for it. So If the boutique paid $20 for it, they sell it for $40, right? That's like the MSRP. I mean, they could sell it for more than $40 if they want to, but they might not have success with that. Now, that keystone margin, that doubling the price, that's 50%, right? I'm going to be real with you and tell you that the vast majority of retailers, like big brands and retailers and even medium-sized brands and retailers, are marking things up. 70%, 75%, 80%, right? Much more than that doubling. We're talking like three, four, maybe even five times the cost they paid for it. And it's because they're covering things like free shipping and overproduction and returns and all these other line items, right? So they need to have that original price be much, much higher than the cost they paid for it. But They can't mark stuff up to a really high price because people are price sensitive. So what do they do to get that huge markup? They push down the cost of what they're selling, right? The cost that they pay for it, not the cost the customer is paying for it. These margin targets, like I was saying, they 
that you get from upper management, they begin in a larger budget where things like rent and salaries and freight and the cost of processing returns and free shipping and everything else are itemized. They use all of that. They add it all up. They figure out how much money they need to make and how much they need to sell to get there. And that kind of dictates the cost of everything, right? Or at least these margin targets, which tie back to the cost of everything. The more free shipping, the more returns, the more overproduction, the more of all of these things that happen, the higher those margin targets, the higher the markup becomes. And the costs of what buying and design and production can spend on a product go down. And that means cheaper fabric, cheaper trims, less fittings. Like I said, how many times have I been in a meeting where we said, ha ha, it'll fit someone. It means less details, say goodbye to those pockets. And of course, squeezing the factories for lower costing. And as a result, garment workers are also paid even less. So there we go. The model becomes more exploitative and the quality just gets worse. Basically what I'm saying is that every time you buy something new from a big brand or retailer, no matter how low the price was, you're paying a little bit towards all of that free shipping, even if you bought it in the store, you're still paying towards that. The thing is, sometimes that's not even enough for these companies to make the math math in this world of just like, oh my God, all of these expenses for themselves that they've kind of created, right? They've created by making a lot of bad decisions that, you know, were made to sell as much stuff as possible, right? Coming back to bite them in the butt for sure. So they're going to have to cut expenses elsewhere to cover all this free shipping and all this other stuff. They're, they're going to pay their own workers less. And that means in the offices, in the warehouses, in the stores. This means they're going to provide less expensive benefits to everyone, and they're going to keep workers whenever possible at less than full-time hours to avoid offering benefits. That means lots of people work one or two jobs and don't have health insurance here in the United States. They don't have paid time off. They don't have sick days. It's, it's disgusting to say that out loud, even as a person who, man, I got to tell you, back, way back when I was working retail... I rode my bike everywhere, right? Because I couldn't afford a car. And I got hit by a car on my way to work one day. And it was a hit and run. And they left. And I was in shock. I somehow made my way to work. I think I walked the whole way there. I come in, I'm like all bloody. I'm like out of it. I'd broken my jaw. I didn't know that then. And I wanted to go get some health care. But my manager had forgotten to file my paperwork for health insurance. I'd just become full-time like a few weeks before that, and I should have been covered by health insurance, but she'd forgotten to submit the paperwork. The company was like, well, you have to wait another year. You have to wait until open enrollment. And that is ridiculous to me, just to say that out loud. I can't believe this happened. Here I am working full-time at a job, and I can't even go see a doctor. And when I did finally borrow some money, to go see a doctor. The doctor was like, well, your jaw is broken. We should really wire it shut, but you don't have any health insurance. I don't think you can afford it. And he was right. And so I just had to like let it heal. And of course, this this is the kind of thing that turns into chronic problems, right? I still, I still feel it, you know? These are the kinds of things that happen more and more often because retailers can't make the math math with all the other 
dumb decisions they're making. So when you say this all out loud, when you really think about it, you start to see how free shipping, get ready for it, exacerbates wealth inequality, right? Because people aren't making enough money. They don't have benefits. They don't have access to pay time off. They can't afford to have a good life, right? Okay, but that's just the beginning of it. (laughs) This is like a big thing. So remember how I said that retailers renegotiate shipping costs with the carriers? They do this to get the cheapest price they can. And they often do this by sort of promising to ship a certain number of packages each year. There's all kinds of spreadsheets involved. And often getting those lower prices on shipping for next year means promising you'll ship more stuff next year, which means you'll do anything you can to sell more stuff next year to hold on to that low, low pricing for shipping that allows you to offer free shipping. So the free shipping machine kind of fuels the overconsumption and waste colonialism that's happening right now, right? Because this is where you start to see even more weird deals and sales and all kinds of stuff, all these levers being pulled to get us to buy more stuff, right? So they can hold on to that that lower shipping price. Furthermore, you might not be surprised to hear this, these shipping companies have executives to pay bonuses and shareholders who want dividends, so they have to make the cost up somewhere too. For one, they raise shipping rates for small businesses and regular people like myself who just want to send a gift or some cookies and suddenly we're like $25 deep. I want to assure you these big brands are not paying anything close to that in shipping. This also forces these shipping carriers to cut their costs by, you guessed it, paying their workers less and decreasing benefits for the employees. They probably also cut employee count too, having, you know, less people doing the same amount of work as more people because they got to make profit while offering this pricing that's probably not very realistic to these big brands who need that unrealistic pricing in order to offer us free shipping. And so it's just like dumb cycle here too, just this shipping industrial complex of foolishness. So here again, we see the myth of free shipping, suppressing wages, and just generally affecting quality of life for more people. While workers around the world are feeling the pinch of covering those shipping costs as their wages are pushed lower. We're talking garment workers, the employees of all of these brands and retailers. Like I said, it's, it's the corporate staff, it's the retail staff, it's the warehouse workers, and it's anyone who works in the shipping industry from mechanics to truck drivers to parcel sorters to delivery people. This is why UPS was threatening to strike last year. It also affects all the people working in the corporate offices of these shipping companies, whether they're accountants or in HR or administrative assistants. This suppresses all of their wages and benefits as well. All so, I mean, think about it. All this is happening so that retailers can offer us free shipping so we'll buy more stuff. That's, that's where it all starts. On top of that, we get some really low quality clothing, lots of other really low quality stuff too. And then of course, these clothes are more likely to be returned, which means the return rate increases, which means the cost of processing those returns increases. And then the cost of making our clothing is further reduced, leading to more returns. 
into infinity. <laughs> it's just... Oh, it's a broken system. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Let's take a moment to list out all of the things we're actually paying for when we buy clothes. You know, these things that aren't the actual clothes, okay? So we've got air freight, right? We've got returns, overproduction, and free shipping. These are all things that really, really add up over time. When you see that list, you can't help but wonder how, knowing that they have to pay to ship everything via air, and they have to give us all that free shipping, and they're making too much, and there are all of these returns. When you know all of that, you have to ask, how do they keep the prices so low? Like, How does the math, you know, math in this situation? You know, the answer, I mean, it's pretty simple. It kind of does, and it kind of doesn't. Which brings me to the next reason why new clothing is kind of garbage these days. It's all of those deals, deals, deals. As I say often, clothes are actually less expensive now than they were in the 1990s, even though the retail prices of just about everything else have increased. And and it's a twofold issue. Like for one, the original prices themselves are lower, like what's on the price tag, right? And two, things go on sale faster. There are a tremendous amount of promos and discount codes, flash sales, and 
It starts to feel kind of irresponsible to pay full price for anything when you know it will go on sale soon or that you could just take a few moments to track down a discount code. That's where we live right now. And it's it's interesting to me because for years in the early part of my career, Macy's was the cautionary tale. You don't want to be like Macy's where everything is always on sale all the time and there are all these stackable promos. And if you sign up for a credit card, you get even more percentage off, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It was like, don't be Macy's. Macy's has trained their customer to expect to buy things on sale. And then as a result, to never pay full price. And the math and how it maths at Macy's is is its own disaster. (laughs) But the reality is that like all of these brands who didn't want to be Macy's, who didn't want to train their customers to buy stuff on sale, they kind of did, right? I did think it would be kind of fun at least in a very like what I think of as fun kind of way to compare some prices of stuff from the 1990s to now. And I mean, specifically clothing. I decided that I would compare the 1996 Delia's winter catalog to the Urban Outfitters website. I figured, you know, they've got the same kind of stuff on the site right now. It's that season. They both target teen girls That part made sense to me. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, before I started, before I even really started to read the copy in the scans I looked at of the Delia's catalog or went over to look at the Urban Outfitters website, I had no idea that this was going to be such a good comparison. And you'll find out why, okay? So first things first, thanks to inflation, $1 in 1996 is about $1.92 in 2024. So almost double. That's a pretty big jump right there. And I want you to keep that in mind as we do this little experiment. And don't worry, I have already gotten out my calculator. I've been calculating the adjusted pricing for inflation for all these Delius things. So you're not gonna be required to get out your own calculator and follow along. Although to be honest, I would be really stoked if you did. just because I love, you know, calculators and math. Okay, so anyway, like I said, I started this not even realizing how well this was gonna work out. Um, And I kind of can't believe that the first item we're going to compare from that 1996 Delia's Winter Catalog is a Bulldog zip-up hoodie. Now, those of you who are elder millennials or Gen Xers, will know that Bulldog is actually an Urban Outfitters brand that they were selling wholesale at that point and in their own stores. And over time, it became BDG, which is a brand that many of you probably recognize from Urban Outfitters, you know, at least those of you who have shopped there. For some reason, they had to drop a bunch of letters and shift from Bulldog to BDG Sometime I want to say in the late 90s, early aughts, I'm sure it was a copyright issue. So in 1996, the zip hoodie, this bulldog zip hoodie was $36. That's a little bit more than $69, $69.12 to be exact in 2024. Well, guess what? I went on the Urban Outfitters website. I found a BDG zip hoodie for sale on their website 
And guess what? It's $59. So $10 less than that Delia's price when adjusted for inflation. Now, unfortunately, the Delia's catalog doesn't list fabric content, which is very, very naughty Delia's. Don't like it. But I can tell you that the Urban Outfitters hoodie is 80% cotton, 20% polyester. And that poly blend probably helps keep the cost low. I would suspect, once again, this is pure conjecture. I have in my lifetime bought very little stuff from the Delia's catalog because it was really expensive. But I did have a Delia's hoodie, probably a bulldog one, as I look back, that I got at the Delia's outlet in Reading, Pennsylvania. When I was in high school and my grandma took me there and like I had a little mini shopping spree with her, I did get a hoodie there. And I specifically remember that it was 100% cotton. Once again, may not have been the same style, but doesn't surprise me that the Delia's hoodie would be 100% cotton, whereas the Urban Outfitters hoodie of 2024 is going to be a cotton poly blend. So next... I wanted to compare this really cute wool sweater from the Delia's catalog. It's called the Scandinavian sweater, and it's a very cute fair isle pattern. I would totally wear it. I was like, oh, this would be a great one to compare because we've talked about sweaters so much recently here on Close Horse. Guess what? <laughs> I mean, you're probably not going to be surprised, but I had faith, okay? I really thought I could find a wool sweater on the Urban Outfitters website, and actually, I couldn't find a single wool sweater on the Urban Outfitters website that wasn't vintage. Everything else was like poly blends, acrylic, that kind of stuff. I will say that the Delia sweater was $59. It was one of the more expensive things in the catalog, which is $113.28 in 2024. The vast majority of the sweaters on the Urban Outfitters website are priced far below that unless they're like a brand from somewhere else. Also, all of those Urban Outfitters sweaters were synthetic. So it once again speaks to this in garbageification. Is that a word? In garbageification does not roll off the tongue. Anyway, kind of speaks to clothes getting kind of garbagey. We'll say it that way. <laughs> okay, so the next one is really interesting to me. It's an iconic 90s style. It is the carpenter jean. Now, Delia's has a pair from Bulldog, aka BDG, aka an Urban Outfitters brand. And in the catalog, they are $39. That makes them about $75 in today's money. Urban Outfitters has a pair of BDG carpenter pants on its site right now. And they retail for $79, but they are an additional 25% off, making them $59.25 less expensive than the Delia's pants. And this is not a sale item. Like it hasn't been marked down. It's not in the clearance section. It's just a random promo that to be honest, Delia's would have never done because that's just not how it worked back then. Right. And this is a catalog. So it's, it's just different the way it works. Delia's did periodically send out sale catalogs, maybe twice a year at most, but there was not the steady stream of new markdowns, new to sale, sale on sale that we see from Urban Outfitters and other brands in the fast fashion era. And that's the thing. 
Urban Outfitters and all of these brands now plan to sell most items on sale, so they push for lower costs for these items in the first place. Now, as a reminder, as fast fashion grew during the 2008 recession, retailers realized that they had no choice but to lower their prices. H&M and Forever 21 were killing them with their super low prices. And places like Anthropology, Free People, Urban Outfitters, Madewell, J. Crew, you know, big brands with prices that were higher than H&M and Forever 21, they took a sneakier path to the bottom. They knew that putting out prices like $1.90 or even $19.90 would ruin the image of their brands as more premium, as superior to the other fast fashion brands. But they also knew that customers couldn't really afford those higher prices or weren't even interested in those higher prices anymore because they could go somewhere else and get a lot more for a lot less money. So what was their brilliant workaround? What was to keep the higher prices on the price tags, but plan to sell most of the inventory on sale. And if you planned that in advance, which of course they did, you could architect the item to sell on sale and be just as profitable as a full price item had been in the past. To do that, you would have to lower the cost of the item, as in the cost that the brand was paying for it, not what the customer is paying, to make that item more profitable even when it sells at a lower price. So let's let's go back to those carpenter jeans, okay? Before the rise of fast fashion, let's say at peak Delia's era, not the sadness that it became in the aughts. Delia's knew back then that it would, in that, Delia's knew that it would sell the vast majority of its inventory of these carpenter pants at full price. For the sake of this exercise, because we have to make apples to apples, right? Not apples to oranges. We're going to use that 2024-ified price for illustration right now. So rather than the $39, we're going to say $39 then is $75 now. So $75 is the price we're working with, okay? Now, Delia's might sell a few on sale that were left over at the end of the season, you know, maybe in less popular sizes and colors, but in general, 90% or more of those pants would sell for $75. And I want to be clear that in the pre-fast fashion era, this is really how it worked because Retailers weren't offering all these sales and deals, deals, deals all the time, unless they were Macy's. And they also weren't overproducing and overbuying to the extent that they have been for so long now. And that, but all that overbuying, all that overproduction forces even more stuff to sell on sale, right? Because there's too much of it in the first place. So Delia's is knowing that 90% or more of their carpenter pants are going to sell for that full price of $75. And by doing all the math here and working backwards, this means that they could spend $26 to $30 making each unit of pants and still run a very profitable business. I'm going to tell you, saying $26 to $30 for a pair of pants out loud feels so expensive for me as a buyer with a fast fashion background. I'm going to tell you, I'm like, whoa, what are these pants like made of gold? <laughs> no, they're probably made of natural fibers, right? And that's that's the difference. They probably had really nice YKK metal zippers, right? 
Yes, Delia had overhead costs of making catalogs and shipping orders, but they didn't, at least back when they published this winter 1996 catalog, have a chain of stores that increased their overhead. So they could spend more on the stuff they sold and still be very profitable. So I think they probably would have spent about $30 to make those pants because their margin targets would have been much lower than those of the fast fashion era, like much lower. Well, in 2024, the buyers at Urban Outfitters and any other brand have many more things stacked against them in terms of cost. For one, they know that most of these pants will not sell at full price, whether they are actually on sale or maybe there's like a temporary 25% off promo or maybe the customer has a discount code from subscribing to the email list or maybe they're getting a discount because they're part of the loyalty program. There are just so many ways in which a customer will not end up paying full price for these pants. So the Urban Outfitters buyers are probably planning that on average, customers are really going to pay about $45 for these pants. Sure, there will be some people who pay full price, not a ton. There are going to be a lot of people who pay, you know, it's like 25% off or more. And then there are going to be a few people who are getting these at like some 75% off final clearance kind of deal, right? And there will also be some units, who knows how many, that will never sell at all and will have to be written off. So there's a lot of different prices that these pants are leaving the Urban Outfitters inventory at, whether they sold or didn't. It averages out to about $45. That's a big difference from the $75 Delia's was going to charge and be able to get on most units, right? Next, the buyers of today, of 2024, have received really aggressive margin targets from leadership thanks to all of the free shipping and returns and overproduction, all these things that Delia's didn't have to deal with. So the buyers are probably looking at being able to spend about $15 per unit to make each pair of carpenter pants, which reads so true to me based on my experience. And that is literally half of what Delia's had to work with. Remember, Delia's had somewhere between $26 and $30. That is a big difference. To make matters worse, most likely those 2024 pants are being shipped via airplane because, you know, they don't have a lot of time to get them in order to sell them. Everything's moving so fast. Delia certainly shipped all of their carpenter pants to the U.S. via boat, so the shipping for them was such a tiny, tiny part of the cost. But for the buyers of today, that cuts another $2 off of what they could spend on these jeans, meaning that now these jeans have to be made for $13. That includes everything, fabric, trims, you know, like the buttons, the zippers, any special washing, which denim in general is going to get some sort of wash or over dye done to it. I mean, $13 does not go very far when you're making some jeans and you also have to pay the duty on them, which cuts out even more of the cost to actually make them, right? And the cost of the materials, all that stuff. Like, you're ultimately ending up with a pair of jeans of carpenter pants that are significantly lower quality than the Delia's ones because the buyers have less than half 
of the cost to work with than the Delia's buyers had, which means both of these pants might be called carpenter pants, but they're going to be a lot different. The 2024 pants are going to have thinner fabric that because that also saves on shipping costs too. The trims like the zippers and buttons will be lower quality and not last as long and definitely not a YKK zipper to be found. And who knows how these pants are going to fit because probably there wasn't any time or money to really fit them. For sure, they won't be as nice and long-lasting as the 1996 Delia's Carpenter jeans. And I realize that that is a span of 28 years, whoa, in which clothing changes. But I can assure you that each year, the quality of those pants decreased a little bit more and then picked up a lot of momentum over the past few years as free shipping and returns and all these other things really decimated what a buyer could spend to make a pair of jeans. We've talked a lot about how brands and retailers are cutting costs for making clothing, basically making a trade between quality and covering the expenses of all those deals and free shipping and returns, et cetera. But there's another cost they're cutting that might not be visible to the shopper, but is very obvious when we look at what brands are selling and how those garments actually fit and look. And that's that brands have continued to cut back on design and production staff, all while increasing the number of styles these teams are required to create each month. This is another reason why clothes are kind of garbage these days. I couldn't find any data to throw at you for this, and I, I suspect it's because it's something that's been sort of happening a tiny bit every year for the last 15 years. So there's no like, oh, today all the design teams got cut in half. It's just been happening slowly over time. But if you ask anyone who works in corporate fashion, they will tell you the same thing. Over the years, our wages stagnated. Promotions and raises came less often. Our workloads increased, often double or triple or quadruple of what it was pre-2008 because suddenly we had to churn out so many more new styles constantly, right? That's what fast fashion is. Getting you to shop as often as possible by showing you as much new stuff as often as possible, right? So that increase in newness, that constant need for newness, that really becomes a burden for the people who buy and design these clothes. The other thing that happened is that like while our workload was increasing, when someone would leave, they were never replaced. And I want to be clear that those people weren't being replaced. Those now open jobs were being eliminated. Our wages were stagnating. We weren't getting promotions and raises, all because retailers were finding in this new fast fashion era where they had to sell things at a much lower price, where they eventually were offering all of these things like free shipping and free returns and shipping everything via air and all of this other stuff, all of these other bad decisions of the fast fashion business model. They found that they could no longer 
make the math math, meaning maintain the kind of profit levels and growth in profit that they had been tracking towards for years before the fast fashion era, really, uh, they couldn't make it work. They couldn't do all of that and offer those prices and offer those things while also paying a full staff to create the products that they were selling. Isn't it ironic to think about that? Or frustrating, maybe? Maybe it's frustrating to think that we're all experiencing a trade-off that these brands made years ago where they said quality, fit, even just like interesting, unique product is not a priority anymore. And instead, we're opting for low, low prices, constant deals, and these illusions of free shipping and repercussionless returns. That's the decision they made. They said the product didn't need to be good or interesting anymore, as long as we weren't paying much for the product in the first place. Soon everyone was doing the work of two or three people, and it was always framed as like an opportunity for growth, but for growth that really never came. I always think, and maybe this is me being raised in capitalism or or listening to too much of the Marketplace Morning Report, I'm not really sure, but I think about my sleep every night as a debt or a savings for the sleep bank. So if I only sleep six hours, I owe about an hour and a half to the sleep bank. If I sleep eight hours, then maybe I get a half hour back from the sleep bank. So I'm always thinking about this debt to the sleep bank. And I will tell you that the one thing that did grow, the one growth opportunity I had as I took on more and more work over the years is that my debt to the sleep bank definitely grew. And now I'm embarrassed that I've even talked about my debt to the sleep bank, and I hope at least one of you also looks at it that way. And is this something that I should someday see a therapist about? I'm not really sure. Maybe I should just try to sleep more. (laughs) Anyway, what this all meant for all of us is that designers, production managers, and buyers had a lot less time to get things right. We know things were moving fast, and now the volume of styles that they are handling on a daily basis is increasing two, three, four times. There's not enough time to get to anything the right way, right? There's not even time to design really cool stuff in the first place because it's happening so fast. Furthermore, pressure increased for management to just start buying samples. Spoiler, they weren't actual samples, just things we bought from other brands. And then just copy these samples, which leads to more and more brands kind of selling the same stuff as they copied a copy of a copy of a copy. And nothing is interesting anymore, right? You know what? Before we continue with this, let's let's take a moment to th- talk about who works on these teams, right? Like, you know about the buyers, because I talk about it all the time. I'll tell you, it is hard to manage your business and look at data and buy the right things when you shift from managing four categories to six or seven or eight, and leadership won't hire an assistant to help you because it's just not in the budget. So we see these teams, even for buyers, getting smaller. Then there are the designers. These are not just the designers who create the garments, but also the print designers. And I know so many 
me tell you, some big brands with a very high style count where most of their product is completely designed in-house who have one print designer designing the prints that go on everything and maybe even designing graphic tee art. I mean, it is ridiculous. I'm actually worried that print designers will soon be replaced by AI. Don't worry, I'm working on an episode about that. It's definitely on my mind. There are also the technical designers. They create the actual tech packs that turn into patterns. They also handle a lot of the fit-related stuff. They may have a separate member of the team who only focuses on fit. Technical designers, fit people, they are always in short supply, and they never have enough time, thanks to you know the accelerated pace of fast fashion, to do more than one, maybe two fittings with an actual fit model. And so... The fit is never great. And, you know, how demoralizing is it? Like, this is your job. You went to school for it. You take pride in it. And you don't even get to create product that fits well. Like, that that's the kind of thing that just eats away at you over time and makes you hate your job and hate yourself. There are also production managers, who I think everybody always forgets about. And honestly... In my opinion, they have the most difficult job of all because they handle all of the really hard stuff. They work as project manager and they are also the link between buying and the factory. They're the ones who negotiate pricing. They look for cheaper fabrics. They share feedback with factories and they ensure that stuff uh, arrives on time. And they have to work with the designers and the fit people and the buyers and the factories. And it's just, it's a lot. They have no work-life balance because they are understaffed and there are just too many styles to work on. And they're also sending emails at like two o'clock in the morning when the factories in China are open. This means because they have such a small staff and so much responsibility that they are often rushed to settle on a cheaper fabric or yarn that no one loves or good styles get dropped because there just isn't enough time to make the pricing work out. And so You see everyone working together here and you're like, oh, here's another reason why the end result isn't that great. I mean, all of these people are working so hard to find that sweet spot that means a good article of clothing and hitting the pricing targets handled down by upper management. Like they're trying so hard to get to both, but there's never enough people and there's never enough time to actually make that happen. And going back to those carpenter jeans we just talked about, it's very easy to make a decent pair of carpenter jeans for $30 like Delia's could in the 90s. It is very hard to make a decent pair of carpenter jeans that are gonna last for a long time and be a nice fabric and fit in 2024 for $13. The price and the time and the understaffing, it all chips away at the final product. Upper management knows that there is not enough staffing. They are very aware of it. They hear about it all the time and everybody's bringing it up, but no one wants to hire anyone else because they got to hit the profitability, right? This is why many of these upper managers uh, encourage or really demand that corners are cut in order to deliver lots of cheap product. Now, they're not saying make crappy clothes. No, they're saying 
why don't you copy stuff that already exists? Then you don't really need a designer. You could just send the sample to the factory. Once again, this sample, I hope you can hear the air quotes here. I'm literally making the air quote gesture with my fingers. Okay, so they'll just be like, send the sample directly to the factory or take some pictures or measure it or trace it or what have you. It'll save so much time and then it's not really designing and you can focus on the hundred other styles you need to design this month, right? So the copying. There's this chart that I share periodically on social media titled Is Blank Fast Fashion? And if you follow Close Horse on Instagram, you've definitely seen it. It's like a little checklist. Most of the items I list on this are not shocking for any of you who have been on this Close Horse journey with me for a long time, but I'm going to read them out loud because they all fit into everything we're talking about right now. The first one is does the brand launch new items every week or every day? And we know that this is because the fast fashion model requires for the math to math. I mean, you're hearing what a disaster it is so far, this math, right? Everything we've been talking about for the last three episodes. But the math of fast fashion only maths at all if we buy as much stuff as possible as often as possible. Hence, new items all the time, which leads to the next thing on the checklist. Does the store or website have hundreds or thousands of items for sale? That is how they get you to come back time and time again, because there is like infinite choice. As a reminder, Shein launches 6,000 new styles every day. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent right here, but I want to be clear that when you're launching 6,000 new styles every day, you most certainly do not have a design team creating all of those. How, how would they possibly do it, right? It's, you'd have to have a whole army of designers. I'm talking, you'd have to have 6,000 designers, basically, designing a new style to launch every day, right? Because there's no way otherwise that 6,000 new items get launched every day. And yeah, that's an egregious number for sure. But really, fast fashion in general is launching a new collection every week without there being enough team there to do it the right way, right? So this is where the copying comes into play because, you know, in terms of Shein, they're mostly copying. Maybe they're completely copying. I don't know. But they're using, I. this is the suspicion, right? This is what's in the lawsuit that I've talked about on the podcast in the past. The assumption there is that they are somehow using technology to kind of, I don't know, like, troll the internet for things to copy, right? It's not, I don't think they're going out and buying 6,000 in quote samples every day to do this, but like copying is how they're able to get to those 6,000 styles every day. Okay, moving on. Do things seem to go on sale pretty fast? We've already talked about that. That is part of this model. It is because as fast as you're bringing this stuff in, you got to push it out to make room for the new stuff, right? So it's got to go on sale so it goes away. Does the brand have a dazzling array of deals, deals, deals? We just talked about that. Everyone kind of has them now, or at least anyone who's not in the like sustainable ethical space certainly has them, right? And sometimes the people in the sustainable ethical space feel the pressure to have them because customers expect it now. And then the last thing on this checklist, which by the way, 
The post says, if you've checked more than one box, it's definitely fast fashion. I would say if you even can check one here, it's probably fast fashion. The last one is, does the brand copy or steal designs from designers and artists? And to me, this last one, it really taps into this issue of smaller teams to be doing the designing and the production and this higher style count. All of the things on this list are all part of the same machine that requires us to buy as much stuff as possible, as often as possible, in order to keep the machine running. But that last one, copying and stealing designs from designers and artists, it's kind of like a function of everything that comes before it. The constant flow of new stuff, the constant deals and low prices, very little stuff selling at full price, and cutting the size of the teams responsible for creating the new product because most stuff sells on sale or doesn't sell at all, and you need to cut costs. And once again, we see how the industry is just in this dumb, short-sighted cycle. Designers in production don't have enough time to get products right, so there are more returns and more unsold inventory, which pushes down the cost of these items in the first place, meaning that the quality goes down and returns increase, right? And as the returns increase, there's less money to pay designers and production people, so there are even less of them, and the quality gets worse, and then the returns keep increasing, and it just keeps going. Or how about this example? Management pressures design and buying to copy from other brands. Well, now there's less demand for whatever they just copied because it already exists. So the brand has to sell even more on sale or destroy what doesn't sell, which costs the company more and drives down costs even more, leading to lower quality product that doesn't sell or gets returned, which means they have to push down costs even more and even more stuff gets returned. I know, it just it just keeps going. Okay, how about this one? Oh man, the number of times I've witnessed this or experienced this in my career, this one's just such a classic to me. Management pressures design and buying to straight up copy from a small artist or designer. Word gets out. There's a lot of outcry. So then the product must be destroyed. It can't be sold to anyone because it is, you know, stolen designs. Usually it's thousands or tens of thousands of units. And the company eats the cost of any legal issues and the cost of making that destroyed product and the cost of actually destroying that product which, you guessed it, drives down costs on other items, reducing their quality, and leading to more returns and unsold inventory. And so you you just see how no one's thinking this stuff through. Or conversely, they've been stuck in this cycle for so long, no one can see the way out of it. And it's bad. It's bad for customers, and it's bad for our planet. And it's bad for every person on this planet. Because also, one thing I want you to keep in mind, all these other expenses, they also mean that there's downward pressure on how much garment workers can be paid. Everybody's wages stay low. Everybody suffers in this scenario, even if they're not the people buying the clothes in the first place. It's just so stupid. And I don't know how fashion ever makes it out of the cycle. I mean, I have some ideas, but it's going to be a big change for them. They're going to have to be forced to make it. I also don't know how long fashion can stay in this cycle 
before brands just disappear because the way the money's kind of flowing, it almost feels like a weird like Ponzi scheme or something where I don't know how much money is really actually at the end of the day, true profit versus like weird tax write-off trickery, you know? And I don't know how they make up the money as they keep digging themselves deeper because they've already understaffed their stores and their offices and their warehouses. They've already cut benefits and wages. They've already cut the quality. Like what is left to cut to make the math math? How much worse is quality gonna get? If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia 
underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. But here's the thing, and this will bring us to the last reason why new clothes are kind of garbage these days. The machine, this cycle of stupidity and waste, it keeps on moving if we keep feeding our money to it. Basically, the clothes stay garbagey until we stop buying them. And as I've said before, in the early days of fast fashion, we did not think it was gonna last. Wouldn't customers get tired of the bad fabrics, of all that polyester, the low quality, the bad fit, the short lifespan? Wouldn't customers hit a point where they said no more and we would be forced to backpedal on low cost, high margin stuff and start creating better stuff with longevity? Well, it turns out that didn't happen. We didn't have to make those changes because customers didn't care. And to this day, every day, people are still opting to support this machine that sells them disappointing stuff. All of us, the collective we, we are still opting into it. 
And I get it, okay? Because we need clothes, right? I mean, we need different clothes for different jobs, different things we do, you know, like workout versus sleep versus sit on the couch versus go to a party. I get all of that. Our bodies change, our lives change, where we live changes, and we need clothes. Furthermore, these crappy clothes don't last very long, so we have to keep replacing them. But I also think that we put up with this for far too long and buy far too much just because we've lowered our expectations so much. You know, I think a great example to me is the brand Selkie, which I'm going to tell you was a Selkie stand for a long time, eyed up every single drop, combed secondhand sites for like my unicorn dresses I was looking for. And in the past year or so, I've just... I'm over it because the brand is doing a drop like every one or two weeks now. The prices have gone up so, so much, but the quality is terrible. The zippers go check out any Facebook group where people are talking about Selkie. Yes, there's more than one. The zippers are a big problem. Most people, myself included, who own some silky dresses, we don't even unzip them to put them on. We just put them over our head and jam ourselves into it and lift up our boobs to fit them in place. And it's a whole uncomfortable experience, but it's better than trying to zip up that zipper, which most likely won't zip or stay zipped. And these Facebook groups are filled with horror stories of people being out in the dress. It's not even tight. And the zipper just breaks while they're out and they have to wear their coat the whole time. And Yet people in that group buy multiple items from every drop. People pine away for things from that brand that they can't afford, even though the fabric is synthetic, the fit is not good, and the zippers are terrible, and the prices keep increasing. And most recently, the brand launched an entire drop for Valentine's Day that was made using AI like the print, um, I think it kind of came out by accident. It was not intended to be public information. And I got to tell you, no matter where you stand on AI, which that, like I said, that's a whole other episode, right? If you're going to use AI to create a print for something you're going to sell, like I said, there's ethical issues there. That's not what we're going into right now. You should at least go in there and clean it up so it looks okay. Um, And these prints... That didn't even happen. So there was like a dog like with eight toes and just weird sloppy stuff hanging out that could have just like someone had taken an hour in Photoshop, they could have cleaned up. And so everything about it just felt so careless and rushed to me. And I was like, wow, like if we didn't think Sulky was following the fast fashion model, they certainly are. Constant drops, constant newness, declining quality, and rushing through and using AI prints. Yep, this all sounds so much like my experience working for fast fashion brands. And once again, people are still like, whatever, I love the brand, just keep buying. These dresses are not stuff that you can wear every day. You could, but most people are not, and they're very expensive. And people are buying stuff from every collection, having entire closets, entire rooms of their houses, just for their Selkie collection. It's really, it's really disheartening to me. And I don't mean to pick on Selkie fans. I'm just using this as an example. 
But the reality is that many of us are still like, oh, yeah, these clothes aren't that great. Or they're not a good value for what they are. I don't need as money as I have. And yet we keep buying them. It's like, do we not think that we deserve better? Because we do. Are we all suffering from the ultimate imposter syndrome? That being that, like, I don't deserve clothes that fit and last and make me feel good. Because guess what? We all do. We all deserve better. This world deserves better. We're not getting it right now. So how do we get there? How do we make clothes stop being so garbagey? I always say there are only two things that will change the way the fashion industry works right now. The law, which we're working very hard on that with the Fashion Act. If you've been following me on Instagram, I've been doing a lot of work as an ambassador for the Fashion Act. Go check out my profile to see some information about it. I'll also share some links in the show notes about the Fashion Act. And I'm hoping to get some of the Fashion Act peeps on the show sometime soon to talk about it more because it's it's very, very exciting. And it feels like finally we're gonna we're gonna do something. We're going to do something with this. So the law, that's one way we get the fashion industry to change its ways. The other way is customers buying less stuff. Yeah, it's true. We all have so much power in this situation. We can pressure our elected representatives to push for legislation that regulates the fashion industry. And by the way, did you know that the fashion industry is largely unregulated? Can you believe that? Can you believe we went all honor system with with like Zara and Shein and H&M and Urban Outfitters and all these companies. Can you believe that? Yeah, so that's one thing we can do. We can show our support for legislation like the Fashion Act and we can stop giving our money as much as possible to brands that continuously sell us garbagey clothes. Once again, we deserve better and we got to like train them out of it. And going back to Selkie as an example, the whole scandal with the AI print was really interesting to me because people showed up and let it be known that they were unhappy with it. And in the beginning, the owner, the founder of Selkie, Kimberly Gordon, was very defensive and said she didn't care. Basically, she was going to keep using AI because she thinks it's really cool. And the pressure continued for days. And you know what? She did an interview where she was basically like, we're not using AI anymore. We've learned our lesson. Don't know when she's going to fix the zippers and the fit. But right there was like action, right? People made it known that they weren't going to be okay with that. They weren't going to buy things. And that fear of lost sales motivated a change. And I know that's just one example, but it's proof that it works. And one way it works is if we're not continuing to buy so many of these garbagey clothes. I can assure you that if Silky's sales were cut in half all of a sudden, people were like, I'm over it. I'm only buying secondhand or I'm not buying at all the zippers would get better. That would be what made it happen, right? Lost sales. I promise that us not shopping or at least shopping a lot less makes a difference because these brands cannot continue without us. And teams of people within these companies are looking at data every day, trying to figure out what to sell us next. If we stop buying what they offer, these garbage clothes, they will be forced to change how they are doing things. 
even buying less clothes makes a difference when we're all doing it. Trust me, I have been the person on the other side analyzing all that data, figuring out what to buy and what not to buy. If we don't buy it, they will have to make something else. But how do we stop buying so many clothes when we've been kind of programmed to need a lot of clothes? Well, the good news is we don't actually need all those new clothes, which I know sounds so simple and I say it out loud, but it is a complex feeling, complex reality to process within yourself. And it means changing your habits. It means kind of like rewiring your brain a little bit. It takes a lot of work. It's not hard work. It's, it can be uncomfortable work. It can feel like boring work sometimes, but it is work that makes a change, that makes a big change in this world. It means revisiting how we approach our clothing. So that brings me to a message I received this week from Caroline, who is a close horse listener, and let's check it out. Hi, Amanda. This is Caroline. I've been a listener and supporter for a long time. Um, you probably haven't heard much from me. I'm, I'm not very active on social media. It's it's not a space I'm super comfortable in. Um, so I guess I'm saying long-time listener, first-time caller. Anyway, I wanted to follow up on the email. Uh, first off, thank you so much for talking about the email on the podcast. I think it's a really great conversation to have. I guess I would I would extend that thank you to the writer of the email also. I don't know whether they intended it to be as incendiary as it's been, but I do think it's important to pressure check any slogan or idea that we're getting people behind. So thank you for that. I um, definitely agree that small business and secondhand is the future. I have also noticed that there's a lot of emphasis on the podcast from the selling side. Obviously, your professional experience and the experience of your guests is extremely informative. Um, And I do think that the peak under the hood of the industry is... Um, valuable to be aware of as a consumer. I also think that there could be more emphasis on some of the nuances and decision-making from the consumer side. Um, By consumers, I mean, you know, those of us who are not in the fashion industry, but maybe use fashion as a way to express ourselves or just those of us that get up and get dressed every day and have to get those clothes from somewhere. So you've mentioned that people reach out all the time requesting, you know, recommendations on um, businesses or materials or or whatnot. Um, And there is no perfect business or magic material that makes it okay to overconsume. You have a lot of content that backs that up. Um, I think it would be helpful to unpack that uh, some more from the consumer's perspective. You know, when I need to buy clothes, um, shopping small and secondhand is a great start. But what are some other points I should consider to make sure that I'm, one, getting a piece that I'll actually wear, and two, 
that it will last in my closet for a long time. Um, this is something that I've been working on for myself for some time. So I thought I'd share a few ideas and resources that have been helpful to me. So in my opinion, the pieces that I'll actually wear, uh, point starts with having a strong understanding of my personal style. Um, you know, everybody has their own, uh, journey on this. Um, but, uh, Close Source has some episodes on this that are great. Uh, episodes 118 and 119 are about finding your personal style. Um, also episode 143 on wardrobe use. It's great. A couple other resources I've found helpful. Uh, NPR's Life Kit also has an episode about defining your personal style. So does Articles of Interest. Um, both excellent. Um, so another part of the pieces I'll actually wear point is being realistic about my lifestyle. Uh, for example, I live in a city where I walk a lot. Um, and it just doesn't make sense for me to have shoes in my wardrobe that are not comfortable to walk in. Um, I like a lot of shoes aesthetically, but I just don't buy, uh, shoes that are not walkable anymore. Uh, there's a YouTuber called Hannah Louise Poston that has, um, a few videos on style, but, uh, she has one it's, it's called finding your personal style, but her first step is, um, looking at your practical constraints, um, which was kind of an interesting different lens on, on style. And I found it super helpful. She also has, uh, one about how to match your wardrobe to your lifestyle. Uh, she does an audit sort of, of, um, monthly activities and, things that you wear for them, which, um, for me, it was a really informative exercise. One topic that kind of bridges the piece, pieces I'll actually wear and the long lasting topic is fabric content. Um, clothes source, uh, has a lot of information on this, um, kind of sprinkled throughout the podcast. Uh, you also did a series on Instagram a while back that broke down key points by material type. Um, I have those saved and reference them pretty often. I, I don't think that there's a specific podcast about that, but I would love to hear a deep dive on that. Um, it's so integral to, you know, the footprint of, produ of production, um, and also how a piece of clothing feels on your body. Uh, and then how long it lasts, um, both, you know, looks good and, and lasts in our closets, but also in the environment. So yeah, would love would love to hear more about that. Uh, so getting into the lasting in my closet topic, uh, clothes source episodes um, one fifty two, one fifty three, the laundry sods were super informative and helpful. I think it was also in the laundry sods. Um, it might have been somewhere else where you talked about some best practices for storing clothes that are you know out of season or. Just otherwise not in your day-to-day -day closet. Um, that's not something I had given much consideration to myself um, and has been super, super helpful. So thank you for that. Um, I'd also love to hear more about people's strategies for kind of scratching the shopping itch without actually shopping. Um, Amanda, you've talked about uh, putting some pieces away for a time so that when you bring them out again, they, they feel fresh and new. Um, I loved that. I've, I've, I've started doing that with like, I'll put some pieces away at the beginning of the season and then midway through the season when I'm, um, 
you know, my closet starts to feel kind of stale. I'll bring them out and be like, yeah, new stuff. It's great. Uh, so thanks <laughs> in a similar vein. Um, that same, uh, YouTuber Hannah Louise Poston has some videos about shopping your own closet where, you know, if there are pieces that you're not wearing, kind of take it out and try to style it in a different way. Um, I've done this before with a friend who came over and, and styled some stuff in, in my wardrobe, um, for herself. And it, uh, was, you know, really interesting kind of breathed new life into that stuff. So it was great. Um, I also know people do a, you know, if I'm still thinking about this after X number of days, I'll get it then and, and so on. I'd love to hear, um, more about people's strategies for that. Uh, anyway, that's my two cents. Um, this is getting kind of long, so maybe it's more than two cents. I don't know. Um, like I said, big fan of the podcast, listened for a long time, uh, shared with friends, family. Um, and I'm excited to see what you have in store for this year. Thanks, Banda. Bye. Thank you so much to Caroline for such a thoughtful and informative message. So thorough right? Oh my gosh. And like the email, which I always type in all caps when I'm working on my script for the show, by the way, like the email, Caroline's message is a great conversation starter for all of us, a conversation for us to have together and with ourselves and with our people outside the close horse community too, right? Once again, I feel like Caroline, very thorough message, very thorough when it comes to re revisiting how we sort of manage our relationship to clothing. So thank you for that. I don't really have much to add. I was thinking like, oh, I should, there's gotta be some stuff to add. And I, I had, it took me a couple, I don't know. It took me a couple hours to like figure out like what I would add. So I said, one thing I was thinking is that revisit and remix what you already own. And I have a great example for you. Ripped, ripped from the headlines of my life. As you all know, I recently moved from Austin, Texas to Pennsylvania and like the weather could not be more different. And I'm not saying it's worse or better. It's just different. In Austin, I was basically wearing spring, summer clothes year round, maybe with an added layer in January for like a couple weeks. I mean, it just, I didn't need like sweaters and things like that, right? Well, now I'm living somewhere that has many more cold days, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this here on the podcast, but the house I'm living in here in Lancaster County was built in the 1800s, and it does not have central heat. Instead, I don't even know what the name is for this. I should try to do some creative Googling to come up with what this, this situation is called. But basically, there's a furnace in the basement, right? And above the furnace is a grate. And the heat comes up through the furnace to the first floor through that grate. And then there's another grate on the second floor and the heat goes up through there. <laughs> That's it. That's our heat. I will tell you, it's a little bit of a learning curve to manage because either it's freezing cold or it's too hot. It's always warm upstairs, but when I go downstairs, I usually have to put on a second layer and that's where I'm going to, you know, cook or hang out and watch TV with Dustin or fold laundry or what have you. So I've started just like keeping a sweater at the kitchen table that I throw on when I go down there. Anyway, it's cold, right? It's different. And when we first arrived here, I felt kind of overwhelmed when I surveyed what was hanging in my closet. There was, you know, lots of lightweight short sleeve dresses. I instantly felt like, oh my God, I need to buy stuff. 
but I also didn't want to buy stuff. And to be honest, there's nothing that I want to buy anyway. Like most of the clothes out there right now, unappealing to me. So I took a few hours and I really took stock of what I owned with the thought of like, okay, what could add warmth to my already existing wardrobe? And right out of the gate, I found three turtlenecks in my possession. One was a black mock neck that I think I bought from Free People in 2018. Next was a silver turtleneck. Of course I have a silver turtleneck. You don't? Like, what's what's your problem? And then I have a black thermal turtleneck that I'm pretty sure is from Uniqlo. Well, I mean, I know it's from Uniqlo because the tag's in it. I'm pretty sure I bought that on a buying trip to New York City in 2019 when I was so desperately cold. It was one of those days where it's like 10, 10 degrees Fahrenheit before the wind chill and you're walking around to all these appointments and it like is physically painful, like you're so cold. And I dipped into Uniqlo and was like, what can I buy that I can put on? I bought the turtleneck, I went in the fitting room, I took off all my clothes, I put it on the bottom and then I layered back up on top of it and it made a really big difference. So. I've got, I've got these three turtlenecks, right? And the good news is that none of them are new and most of them I've had for several years. That's awesome. Well, I started wearing these turtlenecks under some of my dresses, under these like short sleeve, sleeveless, more lightweight dresses. And you know what? They actually look super cute and they kind of change up the, the look. And I was wearing one, like a black turtleneck with this like gold dress the other day and I had to jump into Zoom with my friend Courtney to help her with some internet stuff. And she was like, wow, your outfit is really cute. And I was like, yeah, I know, right? It's just like a turtleneck with a dress I've had for a long time, but it feels like so new to me. And I'm also warm right now. So there are a couple of dresses that really aren't my favorite, but that I have and I wear sometimes that actually are my new favorite thing to wear with these turtlenecks. So it's like they have a whole new lace on life. And yes, the silver turtleneck looks really great layered under like a nice like ditzy floral calico kind of cottage core print. By the way, just pro tip if you too find yourself having a silver turtleneck in your closet. Anyway, <laughs> you might. Um, but yeah, I also was digging around and I found my two pairs of thigh high leg warmers. They literally like they go all the way up to the top. I think I've had those since we moved to Portland in 2016. I bought them at the dance supply store, which I believe is RIP now or online only. Um, I think it was called the tutu or something like that. Anyway, um, those leg warmers are great under dresses. They're super cozy. You don't even see them. I feel great. It's like a sweater for my legs. These are just a few examples of what I've been doing, which is like taking what I already own and figuring out how it works together. And it's actually been working out in a new and better way. The good news is that I haven't bought any new clothes and I'm feeling pretty warm and cozy. I did buy one amazing thrifted 90s Liz Sport cardigan. It's black with flowers. It's so nice. It has gold buttons. I love it. I'm going to have it my whole life. Um, and I bought two thrifted flannel shirts right before we moved that also layer nicely with all this stuff. And I feel good. I feel good to make it through the winter. I already had a nice pair of snow boost, which, which I'm glad I held on to because I've already worn them 10 times in one month. And so overall, I'm like, I'm equipped, right? Another way to sort of mix it up and revisit your clothing, uh, and Caroline actually mentioned this in her messages, I am a big fan 
of moving things in and out of my closet or in my apartment living days, moving stuff from the back to the front of my closet. Cause you know, stuff gets stuck back there and you forget about it. And then it feels like Christmas when you move it up front. I can't explain it. I'm a simple human being. It works. (laughs) It makes me wear new stuff and feels good. If you keep any of your clothing in a dresser, you know, you can try to rotate it in there too because you know stuff that's at the bottom or in the back also gets forgotten and it does feel like Christmas Day when you find it. Not only does moving this stuff around give me that something new feeling, it also ensures that I don't forget what I have, which I think many of us suffer from. We forget what we have, especially in the era of the overstuffed fast fashion closet, right? I also set up a rolling rack in our guest room that is for special things I want to wear when I go somewhere versus stay in the house working. Because obviously more days than not, I am in the house working. So when I go out, it's like special to me, whether I'm going thrifting with Dustin or it's like one of our big Saturday things where we're going to go to a new town or go to a museum or whatnot. Or if we're going to go out and have dinner with a friend in the middle of the week, I grab something from that rack. It's like special, right? It feels new, it feels fancy, it gets worn, and it I didn't and it didn't mean having to buy something new to get that like dressed up, feeling good, wearing something special feeling. Because what is special is determined by you, not by anyone else, not by the company selling you stuff. It's you, right? And some of the clothes on my like special clothing rack. They're not fancy. They weren't expensive. They're not new. Some of them I've had for years, but they feel really special. And they're my special day clothes. I'll also just add that it is so important to change up our shopping habits. You know, that means no impulse purchases. And I think sometimes we hear impulse purchase and we think it's like, oh, you're out and you randomly buy something. And that is part of it. But here's another example that many of us, myself included, have caught ourselves doing, which is that you're actually going online or going to a store and you're buying something you've been thinking about for a while that you know you're going to wear for a long time that's versatile. You've asked yourself all the important questions, right? And then you see something in the sales section that's like 75% off and you're like, oh, that's pretty cute. And you just throw that in without thinking about it. That is also impulse shopping because... Those are the things that we don't necessarily wear that much, which brings me to my next thing. Don't buy stuff just because it's on sale. I know it is hard. God, sales are so exciting. But I'll say this. If you've been considering something for a long time, like you've been like, I have figured out what I'm going to wear with this. I know it's right for me. I can see myself taking care of it for a long time. You know, you're going to get a lot of wear out of it, blah, blah, blah. And then it happens to go on sale great. What a lucky day. Buy it. But don't buy something that you've never seen before or you didn't like before just because it's on sale now. Because studies have proven time and time again that we are less likely to buy stuff we bought just because it was on sale. And that's because it doesn't feel as valuable to us. And I'll tell you, A lot of the stuff I see in thrift stores that still has the tags on, if we take Shein out of the equation, right? Everything else, it was on sale when the person bought it. I see the stickers on it, especially when I see stuff that's like TJ Maxx or Ross or Marshalls. It'll have multiple stickers on it as the price gets lower and they're all on there. So I know that these were very impulsively purchased and 
you know, the thing is when we buy stuff on deep sale that we didn't even really like, we kind of reward the retailer for making crappy clothes that no one really liked by taking it off their hands. We need to stop doing that because that's another way we enable garbage clothes to continue, right? Next, we don't buy stuff to get free shipping. Seriously, this is how you end up with too many socks or underwear or a random thing you forgot you bought in the first place. And this is how we reward retailers and reinforce bad behavior around free shipping and overproduction and planning on overproduction and overconsumption. We validate all that for them when we just randomly buy stuff to get free shipping. Next, rethink how many you need of something based on how often you plan to wear it. And I want you to be really honest and realistic with yourself. I think being honest with yourself is kind of the biggest, most important part of all of this, really. Be honest with yourself about how many leggings, sports bras, socks, uh, pajamas, basic t-shirts, you name it, that you need, right? Take into account your access to laundry and how easy or difficult it would be to wash these things rather than owning more, right? You know, and I think this is normal. Like you're like, oh, I like something. I want to get it in 10 colors. I want to have 10 of them. After rebooting my wardrobe with my three turtlenecks, I was like, oh, I should buy some more turtlenecks. These are great. Like, do I really need to do that though? I have three. I don't wear a turtleneck every day, I promise. And if I need to do laundry because those three turtlenecks are dirty or have coffee all over them or covered with hot hair or whatever, I literally have a washer and dryer. I could go wash them right now and have three clean turtlenecks. So do I really need more of them? No. I see this happen a lot in my life and with my friends' lives and just in... As a buyer, when I'm looking at data and how much people are buying at one time, I see this a lot with anything remotely related to layering, leggings, socks, tees and tanks, bras and underwear, sweatshirts, you know, you name it. We buy way more than we need because we like the first one and we think we need five or seven or more. We might not, right? Obviously you need multiple and possibly many pairs of underwear. That's one thing. But like, do you really need 10 pairs of leggings for working out? Maybe if you never have access to laundry or it's infrequent or you don't have time, sure. But for most of us, we don't need a two-week supply of fresh leggings, you know? You know what else? And this also goes back to Caroline's tips. Be honest with yourself about what you will really wear and how often you will wear it. Are you really going to wear a metallic jumpsuit every week, right? How many fluffy pastel dresses do you really need? That's a conversation I've had to have with myself. Are you comfortable in crop tops or not? Are you going to say you're going to start wearing crop tops and immediately spend all day feeling uncomfortable like you can't eat or, or sit down and you have to suck in your stomach all day and then never wear them again? Like, like be real with yourself. I had to have this conversation with myself when it came to jeans, I just kept buying them because I felt like I was supposed to wear them, but I never actually wore them. Why? Because I don't like wearing jeans. They're uncomfortable. (laughs) Maybe I'll change my mind, but I'm just not a fan right now. 
So I stopped buying jeans and I got to tell you, I resold the ones that I had. This was years ago, like four years ago. And I didn't buy any more jeans and I didn't even think about it. And I just kept wearing dresses and being comfortable. And it's great. I'm not wasting money on jeans. They're not taking up space in my closet. I'm sticking to this no jeans life. It's nice. It's nice to just be real with yourself and not not force yourself to buy things that you're not going to wear. And sometimes it's because we have aspirations or we have an image in our head that we like or we think, I don't know, sometimes I would buy myself jeans because I was like, oh, if I start wearing these, it'll be like a real growth opportunity for me or something to like change or, you know, not be in a rut or whatever nonsense. Feel free to be a rut in a rut with the clothing you wear, especially when it comes to just being yourself and being comfortable. You know what? Be in a rut. It sounds good, actually. It sounds cozy. I promise that over time, these changes we make within our lives become lifelong habits that we don't even think about anymore. We just get used to buying less clothes, so used to it that we forget that we are buying less clothes. There are many good reasons to buy less clothing. The fashion industry is built upon exploitation and waste. That's not cute. Overconsumption has created a massive environmental crisis that is affecting every living thing on the planet. Well, that's depressing. We save money by buying less stuff. Okay, finally, finally something cheery here, right? Many of us already have plenty of clothing, true story, and there are six generations of clothing on the earth right now, so there's plenty of used clothing in circulation that we can opt for as well. And on top of that, New clothing is kind of garbage these days. What are we paying for when we get brand new clothing from many brands and retailers? Let's see. Let's think about it. All of that overproduction, air freight, the cost of all of those returns of the low quality stuff, all that free shipping, executive bonuses and shareholder dividends, and ultimately a low-quality, short-lived, poorly-fitting article of clothing. Also, it's at the lowest price it's ever been at. Clothes are so much cheaper than they were, as we've illustrated in the 90s. Yet we get all this stuff with our clothing? Wow, we are definitely not getting nice clothing, right? It all makes sense. When you unpack it all like this, you're like, yeah. Yeah, the only math that is mathing is that clothes are indeed kind of garbage these days. It's just not a great deal for us. And furthermore, it props up a broken machine that is just stuck in an endless dumb cycle of churning out low quality stuff made with human exploitation. Because it just can't take the time to fix itself. It's too short-sighted about anything. Not the impact on the planet and its people, and certainly not the impact on the industry itself. Nothing makes any sense. Here's the thing. We deserve better, and everyone around us deserves better. The planet, all of its people, that all deserves better too. Let's make better happen for all of us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you're hearing, please leave a rating, a review. You can subscribe, do all those things, but most importantly, tell your friend 
tell your friend that clothes are indeed garbage right now. It's not in their imagination, and here's why. And speaking of clothes being kind of garbage, and speaking of telling your friends, this month I am trying something new that I hope will be a regular monthly-ish thing. It goes back to my idea of building community, whether virtual or IRL this year, and kind of into perpetuity. This month, I'm trying a clothes horse virtual webinar slash hangout. It will be happening on February 29th, aka Leap Day. It will happen via Zoom. And in this session, I'll be talking with all of you about why new clothes are kind of garbage these days. I'll do a presentation of a lot of the things I've discussed in these episodes, and I'll take your questions. In fact, I'm hoping for a lot of audience participation because that's my favorite part. The event is free, but I, I do encourage all of you to support my Kofi or my Patreon or something else afterwards in exchange for my work. If you learn something and have a good time, of course. To register, you can follow the link in the show notes. Because I'm too poor for the Zoom webinar level account, this session is only open to 100 people. So it's definitely a first come, first serve thing. And I'm announcing it here before social media so all of you podcast listeners get first dibs on signing up. So don't snooze. And I already know what you're asking. This webinar will not be available for viewing online after it happens unless you are a Patreon subscriber. I'm gonna upload the whole thing there for everyone to watch. Once again, this is happening on February 29th and the link to register is in the show notes. If you'd like to support my work financially, there are many different ways in which you can do that. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can sign up for the Apple Premium subscription, which gives you access to all of the Close Horse archives. Or you can use the Kofi link. It's on my website. And it's also in my Instagram bio. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye.